0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys. My name is Kate Moss. I'm a novelist and a playwright and a cishestrian. And it's my very great pleasure, I have interposed myself in this event, uh, to talk to two living legends um, in the form of Virginia McKenna and Michael Morpurgo. And of course, in the time-honored phrase, you need uh, no introduction to these people, but I have done my research, so I'm going to do a little introduction. I know, not not a long one. No, okay. no you look terrified. No, I'm no, not, no. I'm,
1: I'm <laughs> eager. Eager, <laughs> eager to know what's come up. Here's what, what I've done, I can't what remember. You've done. Well, you <laughs> are
0: a BAFTA award-winning and an Olivier award-winning actress, you see, as you know. Um, a wonderful actress, uh, author and wildlife campaigner, and many of you will know some of the great films and stage productions that Virginia was in, not least of all, Born Free, A Town Like Alice, Carve Her Name With Pride, and Ring of Bright Water. Um, but of course, We're here partly today to celebrate not only theater going, uh, but the importance of stories about animals that also respect the animals and their habitats. And of course, you will all know uh, that Virginia McKenna has been uh, a key person in founding what is now known as Born Free. Uh, a foundation, and I think we'll learn a little bit more about it, that has uh, works in many, many different countries, making sure that animals are respected and live in their habitats and are not put in zoos and behind cages. Uh, So it's an enormous pleasure to have you here today. And just over there is my old friend, Michael Morpurgo. Um, Michael began writing children's stories in the 1970s and he has written, and this is why I always feel so tired when I meet Michael, more than 130 books. I've only written eight. <laughs> so I...
2: it's pathetic, isn't it, really? Isn't
0: it? <laughs> it's so sad. <laughs> and you will, again, know many, many of them, and I obviously am not going to read 130 names out, uh, but not least of all, of course, Private Peaceful, Warhorse, uh, Running Wild, and, of course, the extraordinary Butterfly Lion, uh, which won the Smarties Book Prize in 1996. And many of you will have known the collaboration between the astonishing director, Dale Rooks, uh, who is uh, the director of Leap here at CFD, and of course, a leading light in the reason that our youth theatre here is the best in the country. Um, the collaboration between Michael and Dale started with Running Wild a few years ago, which was a youth theatre show, then it was in the main house, then it went to Regent's Park and did a national tour and won the UK award for best show for children and young people in 2015. So that's enough for me because if I carried on reading your achievements, both of you, that would be it.
2: I was, I quite, be... I th- I was quite disappointed by that. I thought it was really? going to go on and on and no, on. No, no.
0: <laughs> That's because you know me, but I've tried to keep it short. Uh, so what we're going to do today is that, uh, Michael and Virginia are going to read a bit to you and then we're going to talk a bit about this extraordinary novel, The Butterfly Lion. And then there will be time at the end for some questions. So ladies and gentlemen, I don't know which of you is going to go first, but uh, Monsieur, Monsieur Mopago.
2: The Butterfly Lion, Chilblains and Semolina Pudding. Butterflies live only short lives. They flower and flutter for just a few glorious weeks, and then they die. To see them, you have to be in the right place at the right time. And that's how it was when I saw the Butterfly Lion. I happened to be in just the right place at just the right time. I didn't dream him. I didn't dream any of it. I saw him. Blue and shimmering in the sun one afternoon in June when I was young. A long time ago, but I don't forget. I mustn't forget. I promised them I wouldn't. I was ten and away at boarding school in deepest Wiltshire. I was far from home and I didn't want to be. It was a diet of Latin and stew and rugby and detentions and cross-country runs and chillblains and marks and squeaky beds and semolina pudding and then there was Basha beaumont who terrorized and tormented me so that i lived every waking moment of my life in dread of him i had often thought of running away but only once ever plucked up the courage to do it i was homesick after a letter from my mother Basha beaumont had cornered me in the bootroom and smeared black shoe polish in my hair i had done badly in a spelling test and mr carter had stood me in the corner with a book on my head all through the lesson his favorite torture I was more miserable than I had ever been before. I picked at the plaster in the wall and determined there and then that I would run away. I took off the next Sunday afternoon. With any luck, I wouldn't be missed till supper, and by that time I'd be home, home and free. I climbed the fence at the bottom of the school park, behind the trees where I couldn't be seen. Then I ran for it. I ran as if bloodhounds were after me, not stopping till I was through innocence breach and out onto the road beyond. I had my escape all planned. I would walk to the station, it was only five miles or so, and catch the train to London. Then I'd take the underground home, I'd just walk in and tell them I was never ever going back. There wasn't much traffic, but all the same I turned up the collar of my raincoat so that no one could catch a glimpse of my uniform. It was beginning to rain now, those heavy, hard drops that mean there's more of the same on the way. I crossed the road and ran along the wide grass verge under the shelter of the trees. Beyond the grass verge was a high brick wall, much of it covered in ivy. It stretched away into the distance, continuous as far as the eye could see, except for a massive arched gateway at the bend of the road. A great stone lion bestrode the gateway. As I came closer, I could see he was roaring in the rain. His lip curled, his teeth bared. I stopped and stared up at him for a moment. That was when I heard a car slowing down behind me. I did not think twice. I pushed open the iron gate, darted through and flattened myself against the stone pillar. I watched the car until it disappeared round the bend. To be caught would mean a caning, four strokes, maybe six across the back of the knees. Worse, I would be back to school, back to detentions, back to Basher Beaumont. To go along the road was dangerous, too dangerous. I would try to cut across country to the station. It would be longer that way, but far safer.
1: I was still deciding which direction to take when I heard a voice from behind me. Who are you? What do you want? I turned. you?' she asked again. The old lady who stood before me was no bigger than I was. She scrutinised me from under the shadow of her dripping straw hat. She had piercing dark eyes that I did not want to look into. "'I didn't think it would rain,' she said, her voice gentler. "'Lost, are you?' I said, nothing. She had a dog on a leash at her side, a big dog, there was an ominous growl in his throat, and his hackles were up all along his back. She smiled. The dog says you're on private property, she went on, pointing her stick at me accusingly. She edged aside my raincoat with the end of her stick. Ah, run away from school, did you? Well, if it's anything like it used to be, I can't say I blame you. Oh, we just can't stand here in the rain, can we? You better come inside. We'll give him some tea, shall we, Jack? Oh, don't you worry about Jack. He's all bark and no bite. Looking at Jack, I found that hard to believe. I don't know why, but I never for one moment thought of running off. I often wondered later why I went with her so readily. I think it was because she expected me to, willed me to, somehow. I followed the old lady and her dog up to the house, which was huge, as huge as my school. It looked as if it had grown out of the ground. There was hardly a brick or a stone or a tile to be seen. The entire building was smothered in red creeper, and there were a dozen ivy-clad chimneys sprouting skywards from the roof. We sat down close to the stove in a vast vaulted kitchen. Oh, the kitchen's always the warmest place, she said, opening the oven door. We'll have you dry in no time. Scones, she went on, bending down with some difficulty and reaching inside. I always have scones on a Sunday and tea to wash it down. Okay with you? She went on chatting away as she busied herself with the kettle and the teapot. The dog eyed me all the while from his basket, unblinking. I was just sinking, she said. You'd be the first young man I've had inside this house since Bertie. She was silent for a while. The smell of the scones wafted through the kitchen. I ate three before I even touched my tea. They were sweet and crumbly and succulent with melting butter. She talked on merrily again to me, to the dog. I wasn't sure which. I wasn't really listening. I was looking out of the window behind her. The sun was bursting through the clouds and lighting the hillside. A perfect rainbow arched through the sky, but miraculous though it was, it wasn't the rainbow that fascinated me. Somehow the clouds were casting a strange shadow over the hillside. A shadow the shape of a lion, roaring, like the one over the archway. "Hmm, Some's come out, said the old lady, offering me another scone. I took it eagerly. Always does, you know. It may be difficult to remember sometimes, but there's always sun behind the clouds. And the clouds do go in the end. Honestly, she watched me eat a smile on her face that warmed me to the bone. Don't think I want you to go, because I don't. Nice to see a boy eat so well, nice to have the company, but all the same, I'd better get you back to school after you've had your tea, hadn't I? You'll only be in trouble otherwise. Mustn't run off, you know. You've got to stick it out. See things through. Do what's got to be done. No matter what. She was looking out of the window as she spoke. Ah, my Bertie taught me that. Bless him. Or maybe I taught him, I can't remember now. She went on talking and talking, that my mind was elsewhere again. The lion on the hillside was still there. But now he was blue and shimmering in the sunlight. It was as if He was breathing, as if he were alive. It wasn't a shadow anymore. No shadow is blue. No, you're not seeing things, the old lady whispered. It's not magic. He's real enough. He's our lion, Bertie's and mine. He's our butterfly lion. What do you mean? I asked. She looked at me long and hard. I'll tell you, if you like, she said. Would you like to know? Would you really like to know? I nodded. Have another scone first and another cup of tea. Then I'll take you to Africa, where our land came from, where my Bertie came from, too. Bit of a story I can tell you. Have you ever been to Africa? No, I replied. Well... "'You're going,' she said. "'We're both going.'" Suddenly, I wasn't hungry anymore. All I wanted now was to hear her story. She sat back in her chair, gazing out of the window. She told it slowly, thinking before each sentence, and all the while she never took her eyes of the butterfly lion, and neither did I.
0: That was absolutely beautiful to hear you both reading that and and sort of getting the story going. Michael, one of the things that's so wonderful about this novel is it's you you know, you are the boy at the beginning. So can you just say a little bit about how this novel came to life? Because you have so many stories and they have different patterns and also how Virginia was actually part of that.
2: Um, Yes, I can. It's one of those wonderful sort of happening after happening after happening, which made the happening of the the book. In the first instance, I went to a book festival in Hay um, and I was, it was very boring book festivals um, when you're not doing anything, you're just sort of staying there, and you only got to do one thing, and then you go away again, and no one really cares whether you've been or not. So you just feel a bit <laughs> fed up. And you walked into town, which I did, and I went in. The place is full of bookshops, bookshop after bookshop, and in the window of one of them was this extraordinary book. It was called The White Lions of Timbavati, and there was a picture of white lions on the front. So I thought that's interesting because I didn't know there were such things as white lions. So I walked in. And I said, can I take the book out the window and look? And I opened it up and it was just full of these amazing, amazing photographs of white lions. And I looked at the front and it was four quid. I thought, that's all right. And I went and bought it. It It's the best four pounds I think I ever spent. (laughs) And I took it away with me. And I treasured it really. I loved looking at these photographs. The text was, I have to say, quite boring. It was really a study of a pride of white lions in Africa sometime in the 1960s. And I'm sure it was very informative and important. The photographs just blew me away because they were white lions. I'd never seen white lions before. Anyway, I was sitting on a train, I suppose, two weeks later, coming back from London to Exeter, and I had this book open in front of me. And I had one of those marvellous moments which happens with writers um, when you know something's going to happen, but you're not quite sure what it is. I had the book open, and I was looking at these wonderful white lions, and the train stopped as trains often do where they're not supposed to stop. And I was looking at, and looked out of the window. As you always do, when there's a, a stop, you always go, you know, where the hell am I? And then I saw something on the hillside near a place called Westbury. There's a white horse carved out of the chalk, just there where the train stopped across the valley. And so I was going, white lion, White horse. I do think quite slowly, white, <laughs> white lion. This sort of went on and on and on. I thought, I am going to have to get this white lion onto that hillside somewhere. And it starts like that. It started with absolutely nothing at all. And then an extraordinary thing did happen. I had to go to another book festival at a place called Dublin. And i have been thinking about writing this story of the lion all the time. Here's the big problem. I knew nothing about lions. And you really can't write about a subject until you know something about it. i just done whatever I was going to do. I was in this hotel in Dublin, and um, I went to the lift to go upstairs to pack up my things and go home. And as I was coming to the lift, there was this um, lady standing um, by the lift, whom I sort of knew because she was, she had a very, very famous face. But here's the thing, and it will offend her deeply. I couldn't remember who she was.
1: <laughs>
2: I just knew she was exceedingly beautiful, and she was there, and we got in the lift together, and we went up, and I knew, knew, I was beginning to, to remember that this was someone very, very significant. And I was covered up with sort of shyness, didn't know what to say, and then I suddenly remembered who she was. She was this extraordinary uh, actress, actor called Virginia McKenna, and. I knew she'd been in films that I had absolutely loved and the lift was going up and up and up and I knew I had to say something. <laughs> and so I said to her something like, um, I think your Born Free Foundation's really wonderful. <laughs> I mean, this must have happened to her hundreds of times and all you want is someone like you get out of the lift. Anyway, I got out of the lift and she was terribly nice. She smiled and I said, she just wanted to get rid of me. I went to my room and I remember, I remember going to the mirror in the bathroom and I went, you prat, you complete prat. (laughs) And I went to my bed to pack up and there was a book on my bed called The Dancing Bear. It's one of my books and it's about a bear locked in a cage in the south of France. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll make amends for my stupid, embarrassing conversation and thing. So I put to Virginia McKenna, love, and I meant it, Michael, more Pergo. And I went downstairs, didn't dare give it to her. I went to the receptionist and I flew home to my wife and said, I've just met the love of my life in a lift in, in Dublin, and she's kind of all right about these things, but anyway, um, I thought that would be an end of it, and a week later I get a letter, and this letter from Virginia was very beautiful, lovely letter about how she'd read the book and The Dancing Bear, and she liked it, and sort of suggesting that if there was any she could help me on with a book about lions, that maybe we could be in touch. So what I then had was someone who knew Lyons probably better than almost anyone else in the world. Um, And it was a real boost to the whole project going forward. Anyway, that was the beginning. I could go on for hours, but I won't, but that's it.
0: Virginia, do you remember when the lift doors open, this stumbling gentleman (laughs) coming into the lift? I mean, you- I don't remember him being stumbling.
1: No. he was. Charming.
2: Super confident.
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I think he just said, are you you? And I said, yes, <laughs> it was something like that anyway. <laughs> and um, we chatted and we smiled and then I got out. And you then did. of course, there's, that's similar, isn't yeah, it, to your bit? Did, mm. yeah. yes. Then it sort of developed from there. And he kindly asked me to do some readings and stuff with you yes. and that you do. And I'm still doing them to this day, lovely. So I feel very blessed to have met my, uh, Michael and his wonderful wife. And um really it's been one of the pre- precious things of my life.
2: It's it's called a mutual blessing I probably. Oh yeah we so. yeah. are.
0: <laughs> and it do, it shows that it is worth going to book festivals maybe.
2: Yes. And and it's worth yes. get, it's worth getting into lifts.
0: Always. Yes. <laughs> and getting out of the <laughs> lifts. Well, I was gonna <laughs> <sure to> say <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Um so that is a brilliant description of how a story starts to sneak up. But when you have an idea for a story, that's still not a story. No. It's just, I'm going to write a story that's about it. a lion. Yeah. So how did it happen that in this book, because it's not what you always do, some authors do the same thing and you don't. You have lots of different uh, points of view and you have lots of different lead girls and lead boys and all, uh, all of this. So how was it that you realised that it was you, Michael Morpurgo, in this school with the semolina pudding, rather than another child.
2: Well, you'll get this um, just like that. When when you're telling a story that happened in the past, um, whether you're writing for younger people or older people, you really can't start the story once upon a time. Yes. (laughs) It sort of doesn't work anymore. People like this just despise you if you start stories like that. (laughs) So what you have to do is to think of a way of getting back to the past um, and I knew I wanted to write a story about the First World War. By the time I w- was sitting down to do it, I knew there'd been this extraordinary story of a young man who'd been wounded in the trenches and um, after two or three days only and had had his knee very, very badly wounded. It had gone 30 miles behind the lines of it to go to hospital. And he'd walked six months later into the local village and he'd seen this Frenchman really shooting the animals in a circus and he'd wrench the rifle out of their hand. This was The story I wanted to write was about a lion which he'd saved from this French circus um, manager um, and brought back to London. That was the story I wanted to write. But I had to get back to the First World War. So you've got choices then, how do you do it? And I remembered running away from school. I went to school in a place called Sussex. Have you heard of it? <laughs>
0: Best county, um, Michael. Oh, well,
2: this part of the county was, how shall I say, slightly unfortunate. Um, it was a lovely place. It looked rather like Hogwarts, actually. Um, in fact, I could have written that book. Why didn't I write that book? Yeah. In certain... <laughs> anyway, there was this school which I went to, um, which was in a place called Ashurst Wood near Forest Row. Um, and I ran away from there because I was, um, most of us didn't like to be there because we were very young. I mean, the food was horrible, the teachers were horrible, and we just wanted our mums, basically, that's what it was. And I got a letter from her one day from my mum, and it made me very homesick. And so I, I did this thing, actually, it was lo- lovely, and some of you might recognize it. In those days, you all sat at tables in a, in a sort of wooden panel dining room, and um, you could only go out of the dining room um, if you wanted to go to the toilet but you could never say the word toilet, it wasn't allowed. So you had to put up your, hand. I promise this is awful, I'm gonna say this, I know it's a genteel place, Sussex, but I'm gonna say this anyway. Um, You had to, this is true, you had to declare before you wanted to go to the loo, which kind of... um, this was because if it was a short time, they expected you back quick. If it was the other one, you had a bit more leeway. I was going to run away. I wanted leeway. So, and this is what you had to say. If you wanted to say, this is a kind of language. I put it out, please, sir, please, sir. And this is what you had to say. Please, sir, can I go down successful? <laughs> now think about that. Can I go down successful? So I said, please, can I go down? Yes, small purgo. go. No, no Christian name. go. So I went out the dining room, turned right instead of left, went down the corridor, through the front door, it was pouring with rain, and I started running. Here's the problem, it was in Sussex, and I lived in Essex, so it was over 100 miles away, and I'm seven years old, and I'm going like a train down the road. And this woman comes, I don't know, an hour later, half an hour later, I really don't remember, picked me up, I was crying by this time, soaking wet, and I got in her car, and she took me to her house in Ashurst Wood, I have no idea who she was, but she took off my wet jacket, and she took off my wet shoes, and she gave me a sticky bun, and she gave me some hot tea. I thought she was wonderful. And there was a picture on the mantelpiece, which I've never forgotten, of her late husband, as she talked about him, who had been killed at a place called Passchendaele, which I'd never heard of, but remembered afterwards in the First World War. So that came back, and I thought, hang on, I'm gonna be this child running away, and then she can tell me the story of the lion and all the rest yes. of it. So That's all they, it was, it was just yeah. a way of getting back in time.
0: Back in the past, and of course, that story of yours was waiting for the right book to be in.
2: I, su- I suppose so, you've got to have, I think you've got to have experiences which are not necessarily always comfortable. Um, if you're a writer or an actor, actually it does us all good. We have to put up with things and and there's loss and there's pain and there's grieving and we all deal with these things, particularly when they're young, I think, a lot of people think children can avoid that sort of thing. They can't. They have grandparents and grand- they have cats that die and dogs that die. They know about grieving. They know about loss and they recognize it. Um, and they remember it. Those things you do remember and they certainly stayed in my mind, yeah.
0: I mean, one of the things I know, Virginia, you were watching last night as well, that of course, we don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't yet seen it, but I don't think it would be, give too much away to say that there is a lion in this book. Um, So one of the things that I thought was so extraordinary about Anna Ledwich's quite brilliant adaptation, I thought, was the way that actually there are very few animals. There's just the lion and the, the sense of Africa and all the other animals are produced in different sorts of ways. So when you are advised, or you were talking to Michael about, the behavior of a lion and those conversations that you have, do you say things like, a lion would never come closer than this or they would always lie down in that way? What what kind of detail did you give Michael when you were starting to talk about
2: these
1: things in the first place? Well, I don't think I told you anything, did I? Yes. (laughs) We prepared this earlier.
2: It's all prepared, it's all scripted. now, it wasn't, in a way, it wasn't that kind of a conversation. No, you no. talk about um, her time in Africa and how her yes. fascination for lions had grown, her love Texture of lions of. had grown. Yes, very much that. And uh, I picked up from that, I think, um, this sensitivity that Virginia has... Um, For all creatures, but particularly for lions, she's certainly known for that more than anything else.
1: I think that, yes, in your case, in, in the story, of course, it's a very personal relationship. And my particular understanding of the beast, wonderful beast, which is a lion, was really founded on the handful of lions that we worked closely with when we made the film in 1964, so long ago but I've never forgotten it because, of course, it was one of the most important experiences of our life. And um, one thinks lions in a basket. It's not like that at all. Every lion, like everyone in this room, is totally different. We all have a beating heart and a brain. Um, Some work better than others, but actually, lions are all completely different. They're individuals, Mm. as we are. Mm. And, you know, when we learn about them in school or we take them to the zoo or the circus, It's lions and elephants and giraffes, blah, blah, all in a bundle. It's not like that. One elephant or lion in captivity might handle it a bit better than that one. They're not all the same. And so this is why I am so, and everyone at Born Free, is totally opposed to the captivity of wild creatures, not just lions, but captivity, it's prison. Mm. It's not allowing any animal to be who that animal truly is and express itself in nature. And of course, the trouble is now with the, the, land, the wild land diminishing so quickly, the space for all these natural treasures, as one calls them, is going to get smaller and smaller, and it's going to be more difficult. Mm-hmm. And not everyone thinks about lions in a kind of way. A lot of them like them because they like to hunt them and shoot them, which of course we are absolutely opposed to. Mm-hmm. And this is not the story of the butterfly lion, which I would like just to say, last night, for me, I think was one of the most amazing experiences in the theatre I've had in my whole life. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely the most wonderful production on every level. Mm -hmm. The lighting, the storytelling, the acting, the direction, every aspect is absolutely perfect. You couldn't put a pin between the excellence from one side to another. And of course, at the end, we all got on our feet and cheered because you couldn't not. It was so yes, wonderful. Yes, there was cheering,
0: actually, at the interval. Yes, I've never known that before. No. And actually, an entire theatre, for those of you who've not yet been in, of people sobbing. I yes. missed some of the second act, actually, because there was so, so many people crying, yes. um, in a good way, I should hasten to say. So. Um, that was one of the things that I felt was so incredibly moving, and why I wondered about the conversation you'd had. That the character of the lion, and you know the, the the young cub, and then the lion, he's the star of the show. You know, he feels like a character that no other lion could be. That lion, and that, of course, Michael, is something you do so beautifully in your books. The idea that one child growing to be an adult, and one cub or infant animal growing. They will if they formed a bond, they will know each other, yeah. so yeah. when you were doing that story, did you have this real sense that it would be for the line at least to sort of cradle to grave, that sort of sense of meeting when they were both young and then their stories going apart and then coming back together? Did you know that that was going to be how you were going to tell no, the first world war? no story?
2: i I never really know how the thing is going to end, and I think it's probably better that way because if you know it you're you're bound somehow to give the game away. And the great thing for a reader is to find, to find out how this relationship is going to develop. And therefore, if it can develop organically without you interfering with it, uh, it seemed to me to be very important. And the boy, the, the interesting thing is that it is boy and lion, and each of them are individuals. I mean, that's what's interesting, what Virginia has just said. And we know the boy's story. We don't actually know the lion's story, except that it was a cub that had lost a mother. But it wasn't just a cub. It was this particular... Lion cub, which grew into that particular lion, and the relationship between these two sentient creatures of different intelligences, but intelligent all the same. And you know, they say that you know animals don't speak. Well, nonsense. They just well, they're not very good English, but they do speak. Um, And what was wonderful about the play last night, which I have to say, I was. There was something I'm quite cross about. Can I say what I think, frankly? The thing is, the play is better than the book. <laughs> and that really makes me quite cross. You know? I, will, I will talk to Dale about that later, but I just, I just think it was quite, quite, the power of it was quite, quite extraordinary. I mean, I've read The Butterfly Lion a fair bit. I've read it with Virginia on tape. We've been through, I know the story very, very well, and I'm moved by it. But last night, I was just in bits. Why was I in bits? Because what you felt was this entire company had grown together to make this story. Yes, it's about Africa, it's about wildlife, but more than anything, it's about relationships, about two sentient creatures who, who find an, a need for each other, you know? And that's sort of what we do in our lives.
0: And, you know? and it's a play about storytelling, about yes. the power of telling a story and telling the truth.
2: Yeah, but that's another thing It was better, you see, last night. And that, <laughs> that's there in the book a bit, But there's this extraordinary thing, which, I mean, I find it really weird. I suddenly looked up on the stage and there was this man in a red jacket. (laughs) And he was me. So me was talking to me. And it's weird. I I wouldn't recommend it, It really. (laughs) But what was wonderful about it is that as he wondered, as he talked, he did talk about, about truth and he talked about understanding, and he talked about memories. And the grasp that we we need our memories. We are our memories, and we all know as we get older that's even more important. And that's what came through last night. There was this man who was a certain age, in his absurd jacket, um, yeah. trying to hang on to this extraordinary story which he couldn't quite believe. And I I love doing that.
1: Could I just talk first, or just say a, a brief word about memory? Because one forgets we have memories and we think we never think about animals having memories. But two sad memories um, for us. Uh, the first was that when we finished making the film in Kenya and at the end of the ten and a half months we were there most of the lands, except for three we managed to save and there were over 20 in the film, all different sizes were sent to zoos and safari parks into captivity. Um, and My husband, Bill, decided when we finished filming that he wanted to make a documentary film about what happened to these animals that were in the film. And one of the scenes in his film was a visit we made to Whipsnade where two of the lions, one older one, 17 months, one smaller one, had been sent. And we hadn't seen them for two and a half years, two years, two and a half years. And... um, we went and saw them, and there were they were in their enclosure it wasn't a cage; it was an enclosure and I saw Mara, the bigger one at the back, and I called her, and she recognized my voice straight away, and she came rushing up but Of course, we were separated by two sets of wire, mm. so i we couldn't I couldn't mm-hmm. touch her as I yes, had yes. in the past. Yeah. it was actually. Awful. Yes. It was one of the saddest experiences. And the second memory thing is even longer than that. We'd worked in Africa with an elephant this time in 1968. And she'd been captured from the wild as a gift to London Zoo by the government of that time. And she was waiting to come to England. And we were making this film, a fictional film about elephants. And we heard about her and we were allowed to use her in the film. And at the end of the film, six weeks, we worked with her well, worked with her, we just enjoyed being with her. Um, We asked if we could buy her and they said we could, but they'd have to capture another because we wanted her to be returned to the wild with another group of elephants that were being taught to go free again. They'd have to capture another and we said we can't do that because that's another little one torn from its family. So we didn't see her for many, many years. And then we had a letter telling us that something awful was going to happen to her. By then she was completely alone And as you know, elephants don't normally live alone, particularly females. And we went to see her and we saw her walking up and down at the back of the enclosure. And we called her and she stopped. She came, she put her trunk out. It was awful, actually, because we knew we had to do something. Unfortunately, we were unsuccessful. And she was uh, put down when she was only 17. And it was her death that started our work. Yes, Yeah. yes. I mean, we couldn't let it go by. And I, No, and actually I,
0: I, that, that's one of the things I think for both of you that I was going to ask is that you're a wonderful actor and you were there filming and out of those experiences, a life-changing thing happened. Michael is an amazing storyteller and writer for children, but both of you in different ways, you do what you do, but the power of theater and film to change people's minds, possibly more than people standing- Dumping you know, a tub. Dumping it up. Yeah, yes. Um, and I just, last night, I felt that that was one of the most beautiful pieces of theatre I've ever seen, actually, not just here. Um, it, it felt really significant and magical. But I also felt nobody could watch that and not start to think about what it means to take an animal from where they belong. So when you're working and writing, is any of that in your mind, or is it always the story and allowing the truth to sort of come, filter out from under the story?
2: Well, I think in your head and your heart, you hold what you've just been saying. But the minute you somehow impose that on a story, um, I think you lose people. No one wants to be preached at, I don't think, within a story. They want a story to be told and to be allowed the respect the and to make up their own minds about it. And whatever you're writing about, whether it's about war, whether it's writing about uh, animals or relationships, I think it's like that. You have to involve the audience. That's what was going on last night with this um, wonderful audience of people, there, many of whom I think will never, ever forget it. What was going on was a meeting of minds. And it is this meeting of minds. But if if we had, or they had in that show, I've been beating people over the head and said, well, isn't this lion sweet? And isn't it right that he should, the lion should be saved? And isn't war terrible? No, no, no. it's not interesting. What's interesting is a story, what happens. It's relationships, it's, it, it's the people and what makes them do what they do, and how that connects with all of us here. So that when you are in the, for instance, the war scene, like there's, a, there's a significant um, war scene in, in, in this show. And in fact, that's odd, isn't it? You call it a show, and there's a war scene. It's very, very strange, and it mustn't just be a show. What it must be is something that shines a light on what it is to be in that situation. And um, I've never been to war, but I have been a soldier. So I know about camaraderie. I do know about friendship, and how important that is. And I know something about courage, or the lack of it, because I've been there mostly with the lack of it, but I've been there. I've certainly known the need for it. And you witness that, and there's a wonderful moment in the, in the play when this boy, in terrible danger, um, goes to rescue the lion cub with all these terrible animals all around that are likely to kill him. He doesn't care, he just does it. And then later on in, in, the, in the play, he saves the life of a fellow soldier. It, it shows you something about human courage and dignity. And uh, I love living in that world, I think really. Um, it's not that I'm proposing to anyone they should be like that. I think it's just interesting to find out that's how we can be. I think people's potential and their possibilities, particularly when you're young you know you need you do need some light shone on an adult world that is not negative you need and they know they see all the time now these young things because of their tablets and their phones and all the rest that they have an access to so much in the world that is negative. Um, And that's hard, they have to deal with that stuff. When I was young, I didn't know anything about that at all. I mean, I played in bomb sites, I knew about war wars, but I didn't really know, I just played war games. And they see it, and they see Syria. Anytime they want, they switch it on. And they can see the rubble, and they can see the bodies being carried out. How the heck do 10 year olds deal with that sort of stuff? The answer is they've got to be reading stories and going to plays where this subject is touched upon so that they know they're not alone facing these difficulties and you have to treat them also with enormous respect and because they're, I'm afraid the children are rather intelligent. It's very annoying, but they are very intelligent.
0: <laughs> the other thing that I thought is so wonderful about uh, the production and, and the novel is the idea that somebody has a good heart or they don't and it's not about their age. So that the young children teach the older ones, uh, the parents learn from the daughter and the son, as it were. And there are many occasions where the several generations of each character on stage together. And I found that very, very powerful. The idea that we're all in it together. yeah. And it's what you say and what you do that matters, not where you live and whether you're this tall or that tall and all the rest of it.
1: I absolutely agree. I mean, what, for me, one of the most wonderful things about Michael's work is that it envelops young children, young people, his stories, can reach old and young, but particularly young. And I know personally, I feel that the young are the hope for the future. I mean, there are fantastic teenagers of all all ages out there now talking about climate change, you know, the marches and everything, and speaking publicly, mature for their age, because they realize that we live in a very, very challenging time. And it's up to them. We support them as much as we possibly can. We've made a mess of quite a lot of it, haven't we? And I think the children haven't, because they see what needs to be done and what they want to save and protect for their children eventually. I think the young people are absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Well, on that very good note, we need to release Virginia and
0: Michael. Um, but just to say, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you again and to talk to you. Um, but for now, ladies and gentlemen, could you please thank Michael Morpurgo and Virginia
1: McKenna. <laughs>